As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Jeff Yu joins us now. Senior strategist at BNY Mellon. No secret that one of my favourite foreign exchange guests for the best part of a decade plus in London is Jeff. Jeff, it's great to see you. Likewise. Pleasure to be here. The title of your outlook, Stepping Back yep. from the Brink. Mm -hmm. Is that what we're doing? Oh, we are stepping back from the brink. And as you mentioned, um, it's, a, it's amazing uh, that we're falling, we're not falling and um, stepping back, you know, given the amount of tightening uh, that's gone through. And heading into next year, um, the general view is uh, probably every reason to be slightly hopeful as well, especially with the China news coming through. 500 basis points of tightening within a year. What is it? Nine months worth? Mm -hmm. 10, 11? Yeah. Whatever it is, Jeff. That hasn't hit yet. What's the price we've got to pay for that? Yeah, but it's 500 basis points of tightening against how much in leverage, right? How much in terms of shadow leverage? Where was the financial system in 2008, 2009? Where's the financial system now? And one key word here, regulation. Where was regulation or uh, where should it have been um, heading into uh, the GFC and where is it now? So I think no, those are the things uh, which uh, on the upside, you could say it inhibited any potential rallies. Um, for the downside, it actually you know, prevents things. So you think the price we pay for this then is just 20% downdraft in the S&P 500? We've had 500 basis points of tightening. They've layered on QT on top of that, and we, we walk away. No, on the contrary, the price we pay for this is going to be you know, sustained you know, structural inflation, a lot of things. Those returns, you know, the easy money, you know, the low risk premium, uh, the uh, great moderation, which enabled all of that. You know, we've had in 20 years, you know, that isn't coming back anytime soon. Right? So what does it mean to step back from the brink then? Because it doesn't sound like we're going to some... Lovely place. Well, uh, even so, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, where we are, you know, for the U.S. economy, of the eurozone economy next year, uh, is there still a chance of recession? Absolutely, right. Um, but probably at best in a, a mild one, uh, both um, in the U.S. and the eurozone. Of course, you know how the uh, war develops is going to calibrate that too. Um, in China, clearly, there's going to be a growth push. Uh, but just going back to the inflation view, these stagflation um, problems uh, that we've seen this year, they're not going to go away anytime soon, and there's going to be a nasty inflation sting in the tail with China's reopening. Well, Jeff. This is, to me, a really interesting question because people talk about recession as though that's a negative case for the economy. But how much is that actually the best case scenario is if we get a recession sooner that actually accelerates this process of disinflation and gets us to the end quicker? So uh, for central banks, and I think the ECB is a good example of um, this, you know, they uh, present a headline scenario, a baseline scenario, then an alternative scenario, right, uh, depending you know, on the war. So from their point of view, uh, they looked at an alternative scenario uh, where you in, 
uh, in, in June and uh, March, you know, they're looking at growth contraction of 2% or well, the headline, okay, that's surely going to drive down growth, but no, it's not. No, that's very stagflationary, right? So you've got to calibrate this very, very carefully. They certainly want moderation. That's what the BOE, you know, has signaled, you know, two years of household income contraction. I'm sure friends, uh, you know, back home, John, are telling you, you know, the, uh, the situation with the housing market now yep. and the like. Uh, so uh, Governor Bailey and the MPC, they thought that was necessary, but not too much, right? So there's a delicate range there. And we think we're going to be in the okay side of that range. So next week, BOE, ECB, Federal Reserve, CPI, one more event you've got to look at now. Sam Bankman-Fried is willing to testify on the 13th. He's come out with a couple of tweets moments ago. I'll share some of them with you. I still do not have access to much of my data, professional or personal, so there is a limit to what I will be able to say, and I won't be as helpful as I'd like. But as the committee still thinks it would be useful, I am willing to testify on the 13th. Lisa goes on to say, I will try to be helpful during the hearing and to shed what light I can on the following. FTX US's solvency and American customers, pathways that could return value to users internationally, what I think led to the crash and my own failings. And he rounds things out by saying the following. I had thought of myself as a model CEO who wouldn't become lazy or disconnected which made it that much more destructive when I did. I'm sorry. Hopefully people can learn from the difference between who I was and who I could have been, whatever that means. So we're looking ahead to next week. To me, and this is my layman's interpretation, trying to paint this as incompetence or a failure in terms of what he came through on rather than some sort of malfeasance. I'm curious about what kind of legal input he's gotten, given that he's been talking a lot more than they would like. You're not alone. Shanali Bassett's going to join us a little bit later this morning. Looking forward to that. Anne-Marie's going to be with us here in the studio in New York to break down what you can look forward to next week. Jeff, I want to come to you. We started this conversation talking about a lack of leverage. Mm -hmm. Maybe a lack of leverage in the traditional places. Is there leverage elsewhere that maybe we can't see in the way that we can in, say, public markets and equities, household balance sheets, corporate balance sheets, that kind of thing. And also private you know, markets as well. If I think about the um, uh, asset allocation um, views over the last um, few years, uh, with my previous in the hats on, for example, the uh, increased weightings in private equity into alternatives, you know, with that maturity premium, right? You know, when you lock things in you know, for 10 to 13 years or beyond, and then clip that um, uh, longevity coupon, you know, when rates are very, very low, you know, that uh, still uh, may uh, come to the fore, you know, BIS talking about shadow lending, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, the pitfalls out there still. Yeah. FX uh, yeah. strategists have mm-hmm. been coming on and talking about the housing market mm-hmm. as underpinning a lot of their calls. Mm-hmm. Which housing markets are most vulnerable? Are you as well? Uh, so yes, um, Nordics and uh, the Antipodeans, right? So if you look at Australia, you know, right now, uh, if you compare Australia to New, uh, New Zealand, New Zealand's basically saying, yes, we have a housing market issue as well, but the labor market is so tight Income growth is so strong that they're not worried about it. They're probably the only G10 central banks that can hike more than Fed. They're five and a half, um, and I wouldn't rule out six. Whereas the RBA is saying, and they might be wrong on this given the China situation, but income growth is slowing, job markets are slowing. So that means wage growth can't offset high mortgage rates. UK, um, you know, that's a well-known story. Sweden's going to be interesting because um, uh, Ingves, the governor, is leaving. He overlapped with Greenspan for a month, right? That's how long he's been around as governor. It's crazy, isn't it? It is. uh, But the new um, governor uh, is, uh, was uh, well, is current head of the Swedish Financial um, Services Authority knows you know where the issues are in the housing market, so the risks, but also the reforms needed. So you know that's where uh, things can really come off. Where does Canada fit in? Uh, so you know Canada as well. Uh, so when you uh, see the you know, mortgage rates go up, you're already you know, seeing the BOC you know, start to shift to the softer side. We saw uh, initially in you know, Canada being like a high beta proxy, you know, to the US. Whatever the Fed's going to do, Canada and Mexico, you know, will follow as well. But now we're clearly seeing that divergence uh, and. 
in our flow monitor and our flow data, for example, we're seeing clients diverge as well and they're not owning the cab right now. Jeff, this was great. It always is. It's great to have you with us here in New Absolute York. Absolutely pleasure Thank to you. be here. Jeff Yu of BMY Mellon. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Joining us now is somebody who has been absolutely amazing on all things having to do with the U.S. economy from her experience at Bank of America now at MasterCard Economics Institute, where she is chief U.S. economist. Michelle Meyer joining us here in studio. Michelle, fabulous to have you with us. What's your take on these numbers? Well, I think it's as Mike summarized. Clearly, there's still producer price inflation pressures, but you're seeing it different by category. So there's some relief in terms of some of the commodity price pressure. That was a big part of the story earlier in the year. Um, but there's still that lingering pressure that's happening more on the services side. And that's something that's very, very clear on the consumer side, too. We'll presumably see that to some extent. It's CPI next week, this differential between core goods inflation, which is coming down in part because those producer prices are also coming down. Um, but services inflation, which remains a lot stickier. Does this data point to a recession in the U.S. in the first half next year? I don't think so. I mean, one of the things that we've been um, pretty clear on is that we don't think a recession is inevitable um, by any means. I mean, I think, you know, looking at the data that we are examining on a regular basis, the consumer has purchasing power. They've had purchasing power throughout the year. And I think people underestimated the resolve of the U.S. consumer to spend, the desire to spend, and the ability to spend. And that's still here. Okay, so you move to the suburbs. You yeah. understand yeah. this. Everybody <laughs> drives around, and when yes. you have to fill up your car and you actually get a yeah. lower price, you generally have more money in your in your account. So how yeah. much is the decline in gasoline prices perversely going yeah. to fuel ongoing inflation for longer than people previously expected? Well, I might not be the best person to answer that because we moved electric, but... <laughs> oh. Sorry, but carry on. In general, that's exactly right, which is that, you know, it's something that's tangible. And it's not just gasoline. It's also food as well. That's a big part of the story, which is you walk into a grocery store, you buy, you know, kind of the same type of items every week, and you see those price differentials. So there's still those dynamics, these kind of cross currents. On the one hand, quite a lot of nice relief from lower gas prices. On the other hand, food price inflation remains high and problematic. So yeah, do you- interestingly enough, uh, we do have a number here. Gasoline price index fell 6% yeah, in the PPI great. in November. So a significant decline there, which, yeah. of course, the Biden administration has been waving like a flag recently uh, to get people to figure that out. But uh, final demand goods, 38.1% 
in the index for fresh and dry vegetables. Yeah, yeah. So food prices are still going up. Yeah, and people can feel that when they go to the grocery stores, and it's definitely impeding pricing power there. But all of this is really confusing. It's a muddle. And that's the reason why people believe in this recession. And yet it doesn't seem to be feeding into this data. Do you buy into this massive disinflationary kind of feel that people are basically pricing into the dip and rip scenario that John was talking about? So one thing that we've seen in our data is that in this holiday shopping season, consumers are more promotional based than we've seen certainly in the last two holiday season. So when we look at our daily data, we saw you know a bit of a softening at the end of October, early November, and then this big surge of activity into the Black Friday period, particularly for things like apparel, which was really, really strong. So I think consumers are being targeted. They're being you know cognizant of how they're spending, where they're spending, what they're spending on. Um, and relative inflation is playing a role. Relative interest rates are playing a role. So there's you know a, a consumer that's aware of these headwinds that they've been facing throughout the year, and they're navigating it. Um, but I think they've navigated it a whole lot better than people had given them credit for. Right now, we're looking at a potential for the Fed getting a soft landing, just yeah. like they said. What does that mean in terms of how high rates should go? Well, it seems very clear they're not done hiking. Um, so in the upcoming meeting next week, the expectations for another 50 basis point have hikes, which makes sense. That is a slowdown in the cadence of hikes. So they're clearly starting to see some signs that their monetary policy hikes, that it's transmitting into the economy. It's making a difference. Obviously, in the housing market, it is. In some of the good sectors, you're, you're seeing those, those, those um, ramifications as well. But I think that the next step after this will be that the Fed continues to move up, but they do so a little bit slower. They're trying to monitor how the economy is reacting to those hikes. And they are seeing dynamics in the inflation data that also is presumably encouraging, right? The fact that core goods is coming down. We'll see what OER does next week. That's going to be really important as well. Meanwhile, people are still pricing in rate cuts, Mike. Uh, well, some people in the markets are, but it's interesting. Bloomberg has just done a survey of economists, and uh, the majority of economists think that the Fed will now go to 5%, but they also think that the Fed will keep it at 5% for the entire year, which is a little bit different than what you're getting in the futures markets. So we'll see if those two converge. You know, and then a lot of people think that whatever the Fed does is going to be enough to bring us back down to where we were before. Do you buy that? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that we, we just published our economic 2023 piece um, this week, and one of the themes there is this idea of a rebalancing or a normalization. So part of what's happening still in the economy next year, which the Fed is trying to engineer, is a normalization of parts of the economy that we're in in excess. So think about the labor market. Um, should you have all these job openings relative to the number of unemployed no, they want to cool that down. They want to normalize it. Um, some parts of the economy, they need to do more than normalizing, which is housing, where you've had a lot of excesses built that they want to try to correct for and prevent a bigger shock into the future. So I think it's this rebalancing that's been, you know, kind of desired throughout 2022, which is what the Fed was, you know, trying to achieve with higher interest rates. And 2023 is going to be a story of those outcomes in our in our view. What's the outcome in housing? I know you've been terrific yeah. on this for years. Do you think that we're in for a pretty protracted and deep downturn in terms of prices? 
I think housing is in for some real challenges ahead. I do. Because when you look at how much affordability has changed, it's it's huge. It's been a big, big shock because home prices ran well above income for a period of time, which was facilitated by these extraordinarily low rates for the extended period, presumably too long. Um, and that created this big imbalance. So we're already seeing home sales fall sharply. Home prices are starting to fall on a month-to-month basis. And it's particularly in some areas like San Francisco, it's fast. So I think there's more to come. And just quickly here, is it going to be comparable to 2008 in terms of the scope of the declines? I don't think it will because you won't have the degree of REOs. So you won't have that forced selling, which creates that heavy price discounting. Michelle Meyer, thank you so much for being here and have a wonderful holiday season. Michelle Meyer of the MasterCard Economics Institute. Always great to get that insight. Looking ahead to next week, it's Kathy Jones, Chief Fixed Income Strategist at Charles Schwab. Kathy, let's start with the Federal Reserve. It seems to me that at the moment we're focused on the way the chairman frames risk management, whether there is a focus on over-tightening or under-tightening in 2023. What do you think the biggest risk is for this Federal Reserve? I think the biggest risk is if they under-tighten, because they've sent such a strong message about needing to get inflation down before they make any other changes, that that's the number one priority. I think they have to continue to send that message. The risk is, though, that they probably will over-tighten and we'll get a recession and things will break down, but I don't think that they can afford to not continue to send that message. Kathy, how does that inform your view of whether to go long some of these longer duration bonds, 10-year, 30-year notes, versus perhaps pair back, especially after the enthusiasm we've seen of late? Yeah, you know, Lisa, we were pretty enthusiastic a while back about where when uh, the 10-year yields hit 4% plus, we were pretty enthusiastic about extending duration. We still like extending duration on rallies uh, or on increases in yield. Uh, going forward. But I think we're going to have kind of a rough ride here over the near term because so much good news has been priced into the market. But our long-term view is that uh, 10-year yields can fall as as far as 3% this coming year. So uh, we will use those kind of moves up in yield to extend duration. Kathy, you said that the biggest risk is under-tightening, not over-tightening. How much do you get pushback? Is this basically not the consensus anymore as people believe in this disinflationary story that will pick up steam throughout 2023? Well, we're in the disinflation camp. Um, I think the problem is that because of the lags that are involved, it will take time to feed its way through. And the market, when I look at the shorter end of the market, it's already discounted, re-rated what the Fed's going to do. And given that financial conditions haven't tightened or as much, or they've loosened over the last couple of months, um, I think that the risk is that the that the Fed has to push back against that. And if they don't over tighten, uh, then we're going to see inflation kind of bounce back again at the end of next year. So, Kathy, can we put some numbers on this? The Federal Reserve, in their last projections from September, they get updated next week, of course, had PCE, core PCE, at 3.1% at the end of 23, 2.3% at 24. Let's park 24 because I think 23 is hard enough. Where are you for 2023? They're at 3.1. Yeah, I think we can get close to the 3.5 area. Um, it depends really on wage growth and how quickly that starts to um, decline. We're starting to see some hints that it's declining, but not as much as anticipated, I think, at this stage of the cycle. So we'll probably have to 
push that out and say about three and a half at the end of next year. So just to be super clear, that glide path to three and a half, does that include a recession to get there? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we think risk of recession is very high. You know, the indicators from the inverted yield curve to, um, you know, the leading indicators. I mean, I could go a long list here of things that are rolling over housing. Uh, etc. We do think a recession is pretty high risk. So this is important because I'm really interested in how you th- interpret their reaction function. If if their gliding path is down to 3.1 and you think three and a half year end next year, you've got a recession in the mix as well. Are they cutting in 23 in that world? I think they could at the end of next year. I think it's reasonable that uh, if we are in a dis- you know distinctly clear recession and inflation is pretty close to three and a half for PCE they could at the end of next year. But again, I think the playbook here is the Volcker Fed. You know, we've heard this over and over again, that Powell doesn't want to be the Arthur Burns of his generation. He wants to be the Volcker of his generation. So I think that they'll try to manage it to avoid a deep recession. But I think if the choice is recession versus inflation, the choice will be recession. When, when history books look back, uh, Kathy, do you think that they will agree with Harvard University professor Jeremy Stein, formerly on the Federal Reserve, who says that it is astonishing that we haven't seen a financial system blow up, that if you had said a couple of years ago that you would have had consecutive 75 basis point rate hikes, you would have said it would have been financial Armageddon. The fact that we haven't is testimony to what the Fed has done. Can we actually say that already? Well, I, it may be a little too soon to say we won't have some blow up somewhere, but I would say the, the, you know, the strength of the banking sector is really what's helped us out this time. And that's an outgrowth of all the regulations from the great financial crisis. Where we look for potential problems is in private markets. And you know, we've talked about this for months now um, because of the buildup of debt in the private credit uh, area. That's where we would look for problems to emerge simply because there's lack of liquidity, a huge amount of leverage, and that's where the deterioration in lending standards really took place. Kathy Jones, great to catch up as always. Of Charles Schwab looking ahead to next week. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Matt Miller joins us in the studio. This is cool. Matt, we've got a couple of things to do. Need to work out what on earth is going on in Germany. Winter's arrived, I'm told, by Maria Tadeo. Need to work out what's going on in China as well with the latest news out of the Shanghai factory and Tesla. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also interesting to look at the tug of war between the possibility of reopening in China, driving demand up globally, uh, and higher rates around the world causing a recession that drives it down. We've seen that play in oil. And I'm... uh, 
we have the honor of welcoming Ola Kalenius in the studio, the CEO of Mercedes-Benz. I want to get you to weigh on in on this because it's hugely important for your business as well. Um, if they reopen, more drivers are out on the roads in China, and that's a big uh, growth area for your business. Is that good? Um, and is that good for 2023 for Mercedes? Or are you more concerned about rates rising around the world causing recessions everywhere? Good morning. Great to be with you this morning. Uh, you said it. China is the biggest car market in the world. In fact, if you look at the size of the Chinese market, it's actually bigger than if you put United States and EU together. So what happens in China matters for the auto industry and, of course, matters for Mercedes-Benz. Uh, we have now come uh, uh, through a period here in the fourth quarter where we have had some lockdowns, in some places actually extensive lockdowns, which shuts down dealers. And uh, frankly speaking, if you're, if you're at home, you're not going to go to a dealer and buy a car. But at the same time, uh, the central government has now clearly communicated that they want to ease up the situation. So what's going to happen? Are we going to see a stop and go? Or are we going to see a gradual easing? It's it's difficult to say, uh, but how that plays out will definitely define uh, what the biggest market for us is going to do. Uh, but hiding beneath that has been generally um, a little bit weaker Chinese economy than we have been used to for the last years or decades. And I can now see that uh, the central government is trying to put some, some stimulus into that and, and see if they can restart the economy together with opening up. So... Glass half full, 23 could get maybe better. You know, the other thing about your company is that you're really working on a strategy to go back to a Mercedes-Benz of the past, where you make the luxury car that everybody wants, and you're focused on those higher margin products rather than trying to be everything to everyone, right? Um, that coincides with pricing power that's tremendous um, and a lack of inventory around the world. So the supply side has really been uh, tighter because of supply chains. Can you keep that pricing power if we go into a recession when all the chips come flooding back onto the market and everybody can sell as many cars as they want? Can you, can you keep from going back to the rebates and the, the full lots that we used to see? Mercedes-Benz has always been a combination between, on the, on the one hand, innovation and technology, but on the other hand, luxury, something special. Uh, when you get a Mercedes, it's almost like you reward yourself. And even before we got into this situation with uh, chip shortages, artificially keeping supply down, we had already pivoted our strategy towards being, let's say, more thoughtful in go-to-market, uh, uh, look at building stronger contribution margins, watching our pricing powers, you know, don't do fleet deals that don't make sense. So that that was something that we had started before this uh, chip crisis. Now, it goes without saying that if you have higher demand, as has been the case for the last couple of years, and you're held back, back by supply, that provides for very, very, very strong pricing. If we now get into a situation next year where the economy cools down and, and we get back into an equilibrium, so it's demand that controls the, uh, 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 the sales volume as opposed to the chip supply, yes, of course, we got to stay disciplined. There's no doubt about it. We have um, done a lot of work on our break-even point to make sure that we can lower the break-even point in our plant so we're not forced to keep the plant running at a certain number. Uh, so we'll see what happens, but in general, uh, it is our target to to stay disciplined. You mentioned your plants, and we've been hearing this morning about uh, winter has come in Germany. Obviously, the gas issue is a difficult one for factory um, for factories. Y you can't run a paint shop right without gas. You can't um, run your line without gas. What will you do if it comes down to rationing? Well, after an unusually warm fall, indeed, it's now getting colder. 
Uh, but the task force to deal with this really started on February 25th in Germany. We had we had a scenario already at Mercedes-Benz. What if? What if we get cut off? And we have been working on on uh, optionality and resilience. So. If we look at before the war started, if our gas usage was index 100, uh, we can go now to an index 50, so a reduction of 50% while maintaining production for Mercedes-Benz. How do we do that? Yes, efficiency is part of the equation. Yes, the government has suggested that uh, in all buildings, temperatures are lowered. We do that as well. Uh, Wear a sweater. Uh, so efficiencies has been one part of the answer. Switching to electricity away from gas, but also in some cases switching from gas to oil, and oil is available. Uh, so there's been quite significant resilience package in our company, but in Germany in general. So uh, I think we're, we are quite strong compared to where we were nine or 10 months ago to go through this winter, but we're not out of the woods. So uh, people have to work on efficiency, not just companies, private citizens as well. We are in America, so let's talk about the Inflation Reduction Act just briefly. It's been criticised by European leaders. For you as the CEO of Mercedes, do you criticise it as well? Is this a good thing or a bad thing for Mercedes? The underlying idea to support and accelerate decarbonisation, I'm all for that. In fact, it is Mercedes' strategy to go all in on electric we're going to put the company in a position by the end of this decade to have an all-electric lineup and be able to serve markets that are ready fully electric. So uh, any policy that supports that, uh, uh, to start with, is a good thing. Now, there's another side of the coin here. Uh, we shouldn't do that while at the same time uh, upend free trade. So one has to be mindful that uh, over the last 30 years of globalization, why have we been able to grow economies as as strongly as we have? It's been WTO-driven free trade. So if we take a step back on that and we create barriers again, uh, that would be a bad thing. And uh, and in that case, uh, I'm hopeful that between the EU and the United States, ways can be found to uphold free trade, but at the same time accelerate uh, towards a carbon free. That's the hope, but you're not a policymaker, you're a CEO. Have you got to put more money to work here in America and invest more here and produce more here because of this? Even before the Inflation Reduction Act, we had started that. Uh, we call it region for region strategy. So, of course, our three biggest uh, economic uh, or markets are the three big economic regions with Europe, United States and China. So our vehicle production in general, but also the battery supply chain and we have put a billion dollars into our plant in Alabama and built the brand new battery factory that I opened myself earlier this year, in fact. So we had started that already. Uh, so Can we that, expect more? That is happening. But what you can't do, especially if you're a premium luxury manufacturer, is you can't divide every single model into three pieces and make yeah. it in every region. It economically doesn't make sense. So we also rely on, uh, on the ability to export uh, and we will see how that plays out. You know, one thing that Americans have imported, Formula One. Yes. What have we got now? Miami, finally. Vegas, Austin. You must be happy about that. How cool is that, that Formula One has finally broken this country? Formula One has grown tremendously over the last year. So I think uh, uh, Liberty, who owns uh, Formula One management, has done a tremendous job. And we have helped them doing that by providing a, a very exciting show. Uh, United States. Does Mercedes always, do okay? Is Mercedes good at Formula this, One? This year, are you are you trolling our guest here? <laughs> well, are we well, going well. to have a better car next well, year? Well, 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 we won <laughs> we won one race, so there was redemption. But as in any sport, 
there's always next You've season. You've got to give Lewis a better car. Come on. It was absurd this year. Uh, that ridiculous. is our job. <laughs> that is our job, and we're working on it. Hello, this was great. Thanks for being with us. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.